that first year when we're hoping to make and sell uh, 4,000 tools, we're actually able to make and sell almost 30,000 tools. It takes more time than you think, and your first idea isn't always the best idea. If you're an inventor and you can't build your own prototype, then think of something else to invent. Having your office people right in the same building as the factory, they have a better idea of who we are and what we're trying to do and, and buy into our vision better than they would otherwise. Quality is remembered long after price is forgotten. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting edition of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou. Boy, do we have an exciting repeat guest for you today. Today's guest is the founder of an iconic American manufacturing company. This gentleman invented the multi-tool industry, and his company is a leading company in it. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Tim Leatherman. Welcome to the show, Tim. <laughs> That's quite an introduction. Thank you very much. God bless you, and thank you for being here on the show. So, Tim, for longtime listeners of the show, they know who you are. They've heard your story before. But for new listeners, it'd be great if you could just, you know, take a walk back down memory lane and tell us how you got started. How did you go through your journey of starting your incredible company? How did you get to become the great Tim Leatherman? <laughs> the story of the Leatherman tool starts with when my wife and I took a budget trip way back in 1975, took a budget trip to Europe, and I was carrying a pocket knife, a multi-blade multi pocket knife, which was fine for what it did, but I often needed pliers. And that was a long trip. It was nine months in Europe. We, we bought a $300 used car in Amsterdam and drove it all the way to Tehran, Iran, and back. And during that trip, uh, it was sort of a, uh, what are we going to do with the rest of our lives trip? And uh, so I was jotting down notes. And one of the notes, in essence, said, uh, add pliers to a pocket knife. And when we returned, um, I, I, I decided that this was the idea I wanted to focus on. And I asked my wife if that was okay. She said, how long will it take? I said, maybe one month. So she said, okay. So she went to work to support us. And three years later, I had a prototype I liked. And then it uh, took another five years uh, to uh, modify the prototype to what the market wanted before I found, finally found a customer and was able to start the business. And I should add that during that, that uh, eight-year period in the garage, after about seven years, I was about to give up, and a friend of mine from university days had been following my, let's not say progress, but lack of progress all this time, and uh, he stepped in and said, let's be partners. There's still a few things you haven't tried. So uh, Steve Berliner and I are the co-founders of Leatherman. We were able to, uh, uh, to get an order for 500 tools from Cabela's, 
and that was what launched Leatherman in 1983. That's 40 years ago. That's an incredible story. So I got to tell you, I'm from Tehran, Iran. That's where I was born. So when you said that you and your wife drove all the way to Tehran, Iran, I'm like, oh, cool. I'd like to find out more about what was that like for you guys? <laughs> they drive crazy in Tehran, Iran. <laughs> That's true. And they, they do. <laughs> and they ice skate just like they drive. <laughs> <laughs> wow so um how long were you guys in iran for we were there about three months we we, we had heard that there was work in, in, in iran and so we went there specifically to find work and replenish our funds so uh so my wife and i both got jobs and worked in in iran for a while and then when we did get some more money we left our jobs and started back uh west to, to back into Europe. What kind of work did you do in Iran? Um, I was in charge of a of the maintenance department of a highway construction crew. Oh, wow. The equipment, the equipment maintenance. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. What did you yeah, wife do? Yeah, it was an interesting experience. The first day I, I went into the, went, on the job, I went out to the construction site and went into the shop and the workers there asked me, when are we going to get paid? <laughs> uh oh, this is, doesn't sound good. <laughs> but as it turned out, my uh, my wife worked for the bot for the vice president of the construction company, and she was quite important to him because uh, her English was fluent and his was not. So uh, I stayed about a month in my, in my job, and then she stayed another month or two in her job, and then we were both able to leave uh, gracefully and uh, continue our journey come back home that's fantastic man that's fantastic i love it wow it's pretty cool that you and i have that touch point in common that i was born in tehran and you spent some time in tehran you don't hear that from a lot of americans in this day and age that's for sure that's so fair. so you knew that you had an idea you were passionate about and like a lot of entrepreneurs you underestimated how long it would take for you to get the idea to come to market Talk a bit about that. Why is that something entrepreneurs do? Underestimate how long it's going to take for them to get something to work. <laughs> well, I used to say that the uh, time estimate is twice as wrong as you expect. And the dollars you expect to spend are going to be four times what you expect to spend. But I think it's that much longer and the dollars are even worse than that. Wow, wow, wow. Why do you think that is? Why do you think un entrepreneurs tend to be so optimistic, wildly optimistic almost, in how long it's going to take and how much it's going to cost for them to make something work. Well, I think part of it is uh, that we, by nature, are optimistic. We, in me in, in particular, I, I have an idea in my mind, and it doesn't take me that long to reach the idea that I had in my mind, but invariably when I get there, that idea wasn't so good after all. So so I need to to... Uh, try something else and come come up with a different idea, modify that idea to be able to continue on to come up with something that's actually workable. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's true. Uh, you know what? That I think that applies to a lot of people in business, myself included. I always think things are going to take much less time than they end up taking, and they're going to cost much less than I think they're going to end up costing. And when you said that about, oh, I thought it'd take a month, but it took three years, I go, oh, yeah. I kind of resemble that remark, you know, with some of the things <laughs> I've taken on. 
<laughs> uh, no, I, I actually did... have an I actually have an example, a recent example of a of a invention I was going to work on. I I was staying in a hotel, and the bathroom light was motion sensor activated, and that was fine during the day. But when I went at night, I didn't want the light to come on. So the next day, I decided to come up with a solution for that. And my first idea was to hang a towel over the motions over the light switch. And it turned out that was a very, very sensitive motion sensor. So if the towel rustled, the light came on. Or if the or if there was any gap between the edge of the towel and the edge of the wall, the light came on. So that was the first idea, quite quick to try, but it didn't work. So then the next idea was to cut out a piece of paper and tape the paper over the over the light switch and the light and the sensor motion sensor and i thought for sure that and i also thought that the that i would have to create that tape that at the top and use the paper as a type of flap so that i could lift the paper when i did want to activate the switch and and so i did that i taped i put cut out the paper taped on the top and then just in the course of uh, of accidentally doing my own prototyping I found out that when I pushed on the paper, I didn't need to have the flap. I could just push through the paper onto the switch and the light would turn off and the light would turn on. So so there's two lessons there. I mean, one is that it takes more time than you think and your first idea isn't always the best idea. And then the second idea, second piece of advice is, or lesson learned for me, and, and I think it applies to others, is that if you're an inventor and you can't build your own prototype, then think of something else to invent. Yeah, that's that's good advice. Sometimes it takes more than one iteration to to build a prototype that works, right? I mean, what did Thomas Edison say? It took him ten thousand tries to to invent the incandescent light bulb. Ten thousand right. tries. Most people would have quit after 10, 20, 30, 50. <laughs> Who the heck would have done ten thousand to make it work? Well. Somebody with a big vision and a big dream that they wanted to make happen, right? That's a lot more perspiration than inspiration. <laughs> That's for sure. That's for sure. So in the process of you inventing the multi-tool and creating the first Leatherman prototype and getting your 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 first order, you, you obviously had a vision. You obviously had a desire to see something happen, and you weren't willing to let go of the vision. Why is that? I think it's because uh, I am a person that I set goals and I work as hard as and as long as I can to possibly achieve those goals. And in the case of this tool, the, the tool I had in my mind, the tool I, I wanted to build for myself, of course, that's, that's what I told my wife. I said, I only need one month. I only want to build one for myself. But right from the beginning, I had the idea to not only build a tool that I would like, but to commercialize the idea. So the goal had two parts, create a prototype, commercialize it. And the first part took uh, three years to create the prototype I liked. So then it took another five years of continuing to modify the tool. Come up, Some of the modifications were my own ideas. And eventually the last modification came from a pr prospective customer. And finally, that after all of that and, and then creating a partnership with Steve Brunner, that finally led to an order and finally led to us be able to start a business and manufacture the tool. 
You know, I think that's a very important point, right? Sometimes, you know, you need to go and seek out ideas from outside sources. If your ideas have only gotten you so far, but the base of your idea is a good one, having an outside a source like a partner or a prospective customer come and tell you, this is what's going to make us want to buy this. This is what's going to make us want to use this can be very powerful and very useful to you. And I think that applies not just to product prototypes, but even service offering prototypes. What do you say to that? I totally agree. And I, and I also think that if you go to someone and ask for their opinion, to ask for advice, they're very, very happy to, to, to give it to you because they're so flattered that, that you think that they have, have, have knowledge enough to, to offer something to you to help you. If you go to them and try to push them, try to sell them something, of course, then they get immediately get their defenses up and it's very, they resist quite fiercely. But asking for advice, and, and in particular, asking for advice on a Friday afternoon as compared to a Monday morning, you're much more likely to get a to get someone to talk to you. That's brilliant, man. I never thought of that. That's such a good idea. I'm going to start asking for advice from people on Friday afternoons. Two o'clock to five o'clock is when I'm going to make those calls. That's brilliant. <laughs> Tim, good one. Really, really good one. Okay. So <laughs> you got your first order. What took you from your first order to knowing you had a viable business? At first, we were hoping to make and sell uh, 4,000 tools in our first year. And we were uh, quite sure, <laughs> as naive as we were, we were quite sure that even at that, if we did that, we might be able to pay ourselves back for our investment, which turned out to be totally wrong. It took far, far more tools to pay back the investment. But even then, we knew we would pay ourselves nothing for our time. So it was really a big risk to, to take that order for 500 and then hope we could somehow figure out a way to sell the other 3,500. But we we uh, decided to do it. And you asked, uh, when did we think we became a viable business? Well, it turned out that that first order of 500 tools from Cabela's was uh, followed by an order for 250 tools from another mail order catalog in, in Seattle, Washington. Both companies asked for delivery in late December of 1983, about seven months after that first order. We thought the seven months would give us plenty of time to get, get our machinery and supplies and get into production and, and produce the tools. Well, as it turned out, as I said earlier, things don't go as fast as you think. So a couple of days after Christmas, we got an order from, I got a phone call from the second catalog asking our 250 tools, where are they? He said, well, we're a little bit late. We're sorry, but we're, we're working really hard and we'll have them for you any day now. They said, we need them really badly because they've all been sold. And here's an order for 500 more. Wow. And a few days after that, they called back and said, the 500 are gone. Here's an order for 750. Whoa. Two weeks later, they called back again and said the 750 been sold. Here's an order for a thousand. We said, "What's going on?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it turned out that this uh, this second mail order catalog uh, gave it the prime space in their catalog. They gave it two thirds of the back cover of their catalog, and they took a nice picture of this strange looking object that no one had ever seen before, and and wrote up some good copy, and. People started buying them. 
and the people that started buying them started using them. <laughs> and the people that uh, and the people and then their friends saw those people using them and said, "What's that in your hand?" So that word of mouth grew and grew and grew, and more and more people started buying it. And when that third call came in, was it two fifty? 500, 750, 1,000. When that fourth call came in and they said they wanted an order for 1,000, that was when we thought maybe this is going to work. Maybe we're actually going to have a business here. Wow. Yeah, maybe maybe it is, right? Maybe it is. That's incredible. Okay. So, so, you know, what happened after that? Then, well, the first catalog, the one that ordered 500, uh, they're, they're, they're sold just fine too. They reordered. And then it turned out that uh, back in those days, uh, the mail order catalogs were all monitoring each other. And they, if they got a sensor, it was a hot product, then they all wanted to jump on board. And so we started getting uh, calls from catalogs like L.L. Um, Bean, from the Sharper Image, uh, even uh, Neiman Marcus, uh, Eddie Bauer. He, and they all wanted, they all wanted to get a sample and then and then evaluate whether they wanted to put it in their catalog. Of course they did. And so that first year when we're hoping to make and sell uh, 4,000 tools, we're actually able to make and sell almost 30,000 tools. Whoa. And the next year, uh, 70,000. And the following year, <laughs> 160,000. Until uh, 10 years later, now I'm talking about the original Leatherman tool, the Leatherman pocket survival tool. That, that one tool, and finally in, in 1993, we were able to make and sell more than 1 million of the Leatherman pocket survival tool. Wow. A single tool sold over a million in a year. Yes. Of course, the selling turned out to be not as hard as we thought once it finally sold a few. But the making, then the making became the, the challenge. And it's, there's one thing to invent a tool, and then there's actually something that's just as fun, even more fun, is to inventing a way to make a tool. And uh, we had to be very, of course, we were very constrained financially, and we didn't have a lot of money to invest. And so we, we had to be very creative in how we came up with ways to, to make the tool. And that was fun, too. So... When did you go beyond having a single type of tool? <laughs> so very early in our in our in our company history, the so-called experts said uh, you can't. No way you can be successful if you're just a one-product company. So within a couple of years, uh, Steve and I decided uh, we knew we had a tiger by the tail with this with this full uh, pocket compact uh, tool that would fold up that had full strength, full strength, full strength, uh, full size pliers that would fold up into be compact enough to carry in your pocket and then had 12 or 13 other other tools in, in it as well. And uh, so for us, to, the second product was just a question of should we go bigger or should we go smaller, but it should still be a pair of folding pliers. And uh, and so we decided to go smaller and I went out in the shop. And this time, about six months later, I came back with a product we called the Mini Tool. We entered it. We offered it to, for sale. It sold uh, steadily, but never spectacularly. And it was never more than 5% of our sales. And meanwhile, as I mentioned, the original tool was rocking up to 1 million tools. 
And so that's uh, when we started. That's to answer your question as to when we uh, started adding more products and why. Okay, so this was only 5% of your sales. What had you be able to come up with a product that also took off that, you know, you had to have another tiger by the tail situation going on? How did that take place? What happened around the early 90s was that uh, there started to be uh, uh, competitors coming in, coming out with their own products, uh, trying to make a tool that did what ours do without infringing our, our intellectual property rights. And, uh, and of course, competition is good, and it pushes, pushes us to become better, too. And so we, then in 1992, I believe it was, we decided to go bigger. And we, no, it's 1994. And we uh, created the Super Tool. And within three years, it sold one million tools within one year. After that, the competition became even more. And so we started to become much more aggressive in new product development. Okay, so competition really is what kind of uh, forced you guys to start to think about new products, new innovations, and things like that. So I'm a huge Leatherman fan, as you know. I use my multi-tool practically every day, and I've got several versions of it. I've got a Wave in my kitchen. I've got a, um, a P4 in my bedroom. Uh, in my main office, um, I've got a signal and I've got tons of other multi-tools just scattered around the house because I think it's the coolest thing in the world. Um, the other day, I couldn't find my regular uh, EDC pocket knife um, and um, I'd made a steak and I didn't have a proper knife to cut the steak with. There was my multi-tool. I said, I wonder if the knife's going to cut a steak. Let me check it out. Lo and behold, it cut a steak beautifully. I ate a steak with my multi-tool knife, right? And I cleaned it off nicely and whatnot. And then, you, you know, the same day I had some packaging. I was trying to rip it open, but I couldn't, right? They had some really strong tape on it. So I took my multi-tool. Now, I made the mistake of putting my hand in the path of the knife, and I gave myself a nice cut as it easily cut through the tape. You know, so don't do that. Don't don't put your hand in the way of the knife. It looks like a, like, you know, a, a relatively small knife, but it's sharp as Oh, get out. <laughs> we have a we have a word for that. You became a Leatherman blood brother. <laughs> you got it, man. Here you go. We're rubbing our blood together, my friend. So that's what happened. But um to me, I really think the Leatherman multi-tool is a fantastic thing. So um you guys had a sale around Christmas time for one of your Leathermans, one of the smaller ones. I forget it. So I ordered about 10 of them. They were on at half price at the Leatherman uh website. And I started handing him out as Christmas presents. And my lady, who is a very feminine woman, who is not into things like knives and tools, she loves her multi-tool. She loves it because it's got that kind of lime green color to it. I think it's the Micron, the Leatherman Micron, mm -hmm. which is like lime green. She loves that. Micro, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's the Micro. Sorry, that's right. The Micro. Yeah, it's 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 fantastic. The one that opens to scissors instead of pliers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she yeah, loves it. Yeah. She thinks it's great. And, you know, I got to buy them at half price. It was a great Christmas present to give away. So I thought that was fantastic. You were starting to to list some of your uses for the tool. Yeah. I, the other day, someone someone asked me what I what I use my tool for. And I saw so I, in, my, in my letter back to him, I, I listed them. And, and, and I'll read you my list, all right? Go for it. All right. 
So I used it as a hammer to push a sticky sliding latch for a door on an outdoor storage cabinet. I used the scissors to cut thread. I used the pliers to push and pull a needle with thread through thick material. I used the knife to open envelopes, the regular knife. I used the scissors to trim a split fingernail. I used the diamond file to remain to file off the remaining part of the, the split fingernail. I used the large screwdriver as a pry bar. I used the uh, scissors to cut hockey tape that I couldn't tear. I used uh, the pliers to adjust the nose pads on my eyeglasses. I used the knife blade to open boxes and to cut packing tape, same as one you did. I used the serrated blade to cut up boxes for recycling. I used the wire cutters and the pliers to cut and bend a wire to make a, a uh, hook for a Christmas ornament. And I used the eyeglass screw, screwdriver to push some beads back into a, a eyeglass uh, compress that I would use at night. Wow, that's quite a list. It's quite a list. So like you, it's, I mean, like you, 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 when it's on your belt and you're using it, every, you'll, you'll find some use for it daily, if not hourly. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I think it's a fantastic tool. Um, and honestly, like I said to you before when we spoke, I think everybody should have a Leatherman multi-tool. Everybody. And it, it's my opinion right now that women in particular, more women should have a multi-tool with them because there's so many things they can do. There's a lot of single women out there these days, so they don't have a man around necessarily that's going to go out and do this type of stuff for them. So it's good for them to have a tool like this to be able to use. But even if you're, you know, a married woman and you, you got a man who's not particularly handy, it's probably a good idea for you to have this. And even if he is handy, maybe he's not available to do something for you in that time. It's a good idea for you to have a multi-tool uh, like this. I, I think it's super, super important. The other thing that I think is important is young men. There's a lot of young men today who aren't being taught how to be handy, how to use tools and things like that. I think there's a great opportunity for young men to say, hey, you know, Tap into that side of you that uh, that that side of you as a young man that that is you know capable that can do things that can have tasks. Own a Leatherman. Start using your Leatherman. It'll give you faith in your skills. I was a fellow growing up. I had zero handy skills. Like I was a an egghead. I was an intellectual type of guy. And then I got into sports and I started to get a little bit more handy. It wasn't until my forties that I became handy. Can you believe it? And you know how I became handy? I became handy by using my Leatherman multi-tool. And I think that's an absolutely <laughs> fantastic thing for folks to learn. So I think these are some markets that ought to be buying tools. And I think if marketed to, there'll be a lot of folks in both these markets who'll be interested. Younger men under the age of 25, I think a lot of those guys can, can and should be buying the tool. And any woman who doesn't own a multi-tool should buy it for herself. Don't buy it as a gift for your boyfriend or your husband. Buy it for yourself. That's what I have to say about that. <laughs> All right. I'll, yeah. um, I'll, I'll hire you as my salesman. There you go. There you go. You I'll can be make your, a better I'll, sales pitch than I can. I'll be your, I'll be your marketing and branding consultant too, man, because we got to put some <laughs> good videos together. You know, there's another Oregon-based company that competes with you guys, but they make really good marketing ads for their knives. That's Gerber Knives. They got an ad called Hello Trouble. I don't know if you've ever seen that ad. It is the greatest ad for knives that's ever been made. It's one of the greatest ads, period. I got into knife collecting because I watched that ad and I still don't own a Gerber knife. I ended up buying knives from other companies because the guy at the Cabela's store told me, 
Gerber's knives aren't that great. Here, buy a Benchmade instead. So I thought that was funny. <laughs> but they know how to make good ads and messages. Okay, so you guys, let's 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 stop the digression. That was fun. But let's go back in, into the story of Leatherman. So you started to create other products. Now, which one of your products really started to shine? Which one of your products did the market go, we can't get enough of this? So when did you know you had something that was even bigger than those million sellers that you created? The next uh, revolutionary product for Leatherman was the Wave. Yeah. And to this day, the Wave is still our most popular tool. Uh, everyone loves the Wave. There's, uh, We have a lot of tools that are directed more towards a specialty use. But if you're if you're just introduce, becoming inter, introducing yourself to Leatherman, the first place to start is to look at the wave, and then if you want something more specialized, then consider some of our other tools. So why do you think the wave took off the way that it did? Because that's my favorite tool, by the way. That's the one I cut my hand with. That's how I became a Leatherman blood brother. That's how I had steak. I had it with my wave knife. What is it that made the knife, the wave, so popular? Uh, the first thing is the uh, comfortable handles. When you use the pliers, it has rounded edges, and it doesn't. They, prior to that, the the edges of our handles tended to bite into your hands a little bit. Um, some some people, I remember, uh, some people had said, "Oh, if you don't can't stand a little pain, you're not a real macho man." But uh, once the weight came out, everyone's, "Ah, oh, thank you. We love this. This is so comfortable now." Yeah, and then yeah. I think the other uh, key feature on the wave was that the uh, the four of the blades opened from the outside, opened quickly, and uh, and then every blade locks. So I think those those three things were the the uh, keys to the popularity of the wave. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's a fantastic tool. I'm a huge huge fan. So as Leatherman has grown and you've had more and more competitors, what do you believe has allowed you guys to still be the big kahuna in the world of multi-tools and, and you know basically beat off all comers? Because you're still the biggest and the most popular multi-tool company out there. Correct. I think the first thing is, is that we put a extreme focus on quality. I think the next thing is is that uh, we've been doing this longer than anyone else. So we have more mistakes and learn from them, and uh, we were able to provide for the consumer. I think a third factor is is, is ties into my uh, product philosophy. My product philosophy is that a Leatherman product we want the greatest functionality with the highest quality in the smallest space with the least weight mm. and every our every designer at Leatherman that's that's our guidelines for what we're trying to do and I think by by coming up with the the best blend of those four criteria that we can allows us to provide the best product for the consumer and better than our competitors so you make your products in the USA right and correct not all your competitors do that why is that important to you to make products in america rather than shipping off your manufacturing capacity overseas 
Well, there's many reasons. Uh, one reason is, is that it's much, much easier to con control and maintain quality when you have your own factory in your own home city than if you're trying to go back and forth to a subcontractor fa factory eight time zones away. Another thing that makes it makes us uh, having our own factory here in Portland, Oregon, is is that not only the factory people have a better are able to um, know the quality standards that we expect, but also having your office people right in the same building as the factory, they get they know more. They have a better idea of who we are and what we're trying to do, and 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 buy into our vision better than they would otherwise. So I think uh, those are two reasons for doing our fact doing our business here in Portland, Oregon, doing the vast majority of our work in the United States. Another uh, reason is is that we started here in Portland, Oregon. It's my home city, and I'm. If you ask me in this whole Leatherman journey, what is the thing I'm most proud of? I'd say it's the jobs created. Mm. And because the Leatherman tool turned out to be its own market category, not, it wasn't a pocket knife, it wasn't a hand tool, it was a pocket tool, a multi-tool. And it, it turned out to be a whole new product category. So those jobs created didn't cannibalize anybody else's job. It added to the world supply of jobs. So I'm really proud of that. I'm really proud that they're created here. And uh, for all those reasons I just listed, that's why we do our manufacturing here in Portland, Oregon. And well, we'll continue to do our manufacturing here in Portland, Oregon as long as we possibly can. I got to say this to you. I, you've got good business reasons to do it, right? Like having people near you where you can like have a good handle on quality control and you can have good communication. I think that's a good reason. Having your office people be able to communicate with your factory people and be able to have seamless communication and a strong, good corporate culture where people know, like, and trust each other. I think that's a good reason. But, uh, you know, I think that your patriotic reasons, I know you didn't use that word, but I'm going to use that word for you to build in America, you're an American, you're from Portland, you're from Oregon, you're an Oregonian, and you want to give back to your community and create jobs because America gave you your start, Oregon gave you your start, Portland gave you your start, and you want to give back. I think that's fantastic. That's one of the reasons that I buy from uh, Leatherman is because I know that I'm buying a made in the USA, made in North America. Even though I'm, in Cana I'm Canadian, I like to buy American, I like to buy Canadian. I'm I'm not opposed to buying goods from other countries, but you know when it comes to China these days, uh, one is I'm not a fan of the Chinese Communist Party. Number one, not a huge fan of those guys myself personally. The Chinese people are fantastic and amazing. I have tremendous amount of love and respect for the Chinese culture, and and I've studied it. It's amazing. But if I if there's a choice that I can buy American, even if I got to spend a little more, I'm happy to do that especially when I know the quality is there and it's going to go toward giving good jobs to good people in local communities. I think that's powerful and important. So good on you, Mr. Tim Leatherman. Good on you for doing that. Well, thank you. I think we, uh, I think we, we, a Leatherman tool, of course, being made in America, the cost is a little bit higher than it would be if you, uh, if you buy a Chinese tool. In fact, it might be, 10 or 20 times higher than you can pay for some of the knockoffs <laughs> that come from China. 
But of course, we guarantee our tool for 25 years. So you might buy a Chinese tool once a year and you don't have to buy a Leatherman tool for <laughs> new Leatherman tool for maybe 25 years or more. We, we, uh, so I think that's uh, one factor. And then I think it's also true that uh, quality is remembered long after price is forgotten. That's beautifully said. That's beautifully said. So I know we're living in some tough times. The last three years with lockdowns and people being scared and now there's inflation and recession and war in Europe and so forth. A lot of people are concerned and scared. I want to just hear from you as um, really an American manufacturing icon and an iconic visionary in the space. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs who are listening to this show on how they can navigate these times and still make their visions come alive and be successful? Well, I have what I call my uh, 10 tips for success in business. Let's hear them. All right. And number one is set goals. Number two is persevere. But understand there's a fine line between perseverance and refusal to accept reality. However, if you're going to err, err on the side of being too perseverant, rather than giving up too soon. Number three is, uh, especially at startup, expect time to be twice what you planned. Expect dollars to be four times what you expect. Number four, learn what you need to know as you go along. Number five, sweat the details. Number six, hire good people. Number seven, don't let your employees make the same mistake three times. <laughs> That's good. Number eight, delight your customers. Number nine, make money. Number 10, have fun. <laughs> I love it. I love it. These are awesome. So, Tim, God bless you for what you do. God bless you for what you've created. I know that you've got a president that's running the day-to-day -day operations of your company, and I, I think that's great. But I know the, the spirit of Tim Leatherman um, lives on in Leatherman, and uh, it's an incredible thing you've done. You've created a fantastic company. Uh, I, I would be grateful to have you back anytime uh, if um, you've got uh, other shows you'd like to go on or if you got people on your team, like your president or marketing people that want to go on shows, I can make that happen for you because I'm very well connected inside of that world, if that'd be helpful to you guys. And as I've said to you a million times, I'm a champion for you guys and what you're trying to do and some of the ideas that uh, that, that you guys have out there. And I've got tons of ideas myself. I'd love to be a spokesman for Leatherman. I think you guys are great. <laughs> I think it's absolutely fantastic <laughs> that uh, that you exist and folks, uh, folks like you are out there doing what you do. So, um, where do people need to go if they want to buy a Leatherman? What's the best way for them to get to pick one up right now? Well, to your, your local retailer, your outdoor shop should have it. And, uh, and uh, of course, you can also go direct to Leatherman.com. All right. We'll make sure we put that. So some of the retailers that carry a Leatherman include Home Depot, Cabela's, you know, Bass Pro Shops. These are some folks that carry a Leatherman. And uh, make sure you go to Leatherman.com. You know, if you want to get a custom Leatherman, 
with some beautiful uh, phrases written on it or some beautiful images. That's a great place to go. I ordered a couple custom Leathermans. I ordered one for my eldest son. I got him a P2. I got myself a P4. By the way, I really love my P4. The Wave and the P4, like the Wave is my favorite, but the P4 is a close second. Uh, I think it's a great idea to go get yourself a custom Leatherman, and you can buy that as a gift and send it to somebody. And um, if you're a lady who's listening to this show, go buy yourself a Leatherman. Don't just buy one for your boyfriend or your husband. You can use a Leatherman. Trust me, once you start using your Leatherman, you'll never go back. It's such a handy tool. And you can buy a beautiful looking one that that looks nice. It doesn't have to be this, this you know, uh, rough and tough looking masculine thing. It can be a beautiful, sleek, feminine thing. Leatherman makes those for you. They're available for you as well. And um, Tim Leatherman, God bless you. Thanks for coming on the show. It's great to have you here. Please come back in another year or so. And let me know if you'd like me to connect you with some other shows or some other members of your team. Take good care. No, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Nikki. Ditto, ditto for me as well. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's incredible guest, the iconic Tim Leatherman and his incredible company, The Leatherman Company, go to the show notes at thethoughtleaderrevolution.com or on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Audible, wherever you happen to listen to this particular episode or just go directly to leatherman.com until next time goodbye this episode has been brought to you by eastcircleacademy.com the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice